because it's been that kind of week, a little bit scattered, I, I hope that you will allow me a little bit of grace because the message is a little bit scattered this morning. I want to talk to you about bounty hunters, about nitroglycerin hanging around your neck, about one of the great promises of the Bible, and about okra and anchovy sandwiches. But before we start, let's think a little bit about hitmen. I've come across a few of them in the course of my life, hitmen. I've watched them work. Now, these aren't the mafia people, the, the gang members with guns and scopes. Their weapons are deadlier. A phone call and a commission. Their job, track you down and make you pay. These are collection agents. Have you ever run up against them? I have watched them hound people to the place of tears and mental exhaustion and breakdown. Threatening people, they're going to ruin your credit, they're going to sue your employer, they're going to show up at work, they're going to bring the police. Maybe they're they're going to call your mother. Who does that? A good day for a collection agent usually means a bad day for everyone else that they've contacted. I mean, I... I understand why that role exists, that opportunity, but I just wonder who who takes that kind of a job? Who is it in high school, in the guidance class, going through the vocational inventories who decides, hey, I want to be a collection agent. That would just ring the bell for me. Collectors spend the day making people feel bad about what they owe. No one wants to take their calls. No one's happy to see them at the door. No one wants to open up their mail. You can imagine what it must be like if you're married to one of them. What do you say when they leave the house early in the morning? Go make them squirm, honey. What? How do you motivate them? If you're the boss, how do you motivate your employees? What award do you give? The, I don't know, the blood from stone award? Oh, most extortions. What a job. You can imagine what it must be like to spend your days like that. Maybe you can't. But maybe you can. Uh, Even the best among us, I think we still, still spend some of our time waiting for payment. People owe you something, don't they? An apology? A second chance? A fresh start? An explanation? Maybe it's just a thank you. Or maybe it feels so much bigger. Maybe you feel like you were owed a childhood that you never had. Or a marriage that never lived up to the vows. If you stop and think about it, and we need to do this, but boy, it's hard to linger here for a long time. If you think about it, you could make a list of people that are in your debt. Your parents should have been more loving or more protective. Your children should have been more appreciative. Your spouse should have been more sensitive. Your pastor, he should have been more, I don't know, brief. (laughs) What are you going to do with the people who are in your debt? People in the past who somehow dipped their hand into your purse and taken something from you. What are you going to do? There are lots of questions in life, but... But this is one of those that just has wide-reaching implications, not just for your spiritual health, but for your physical health, for your emotional, for for your mental survival. And it just so happens that this question lives at the very heart of the Lord's Prayer. Up until now, in those words that Jesus is teaching, it's talked all about the vastness, the greatness, the goodness of God. But now... 
we turn a little bit to the grace that we should share. Matthew 6, verse 12. Let's look at those words again. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then after Jesus has taught the Lord's Prayer, there's these two little verses where he goes back and unpacks what is probably one of the most difficult parts of the prayer to understand. So listen to what Jesus says, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. As Winslow mentioned when he was leading us in prayer, we've been... We've been dealing with this image of the Father's house and allowing, allowing each of the promises that are there in the Lord's Prayer to, to be symbolized, to, to, to exist as a metaphor in one of the rooms in this great house of God, the chapel where we celebrate the holiness of God, the foundation where we celebrate his steadiness, the living room where we celebrate our adoption into this family home. You are the children of God. You pray to God as your heavenly father. But connecting each of the rooms in the Lord's house is this great hallway. You want to travel from the kitchen, give us this day our daily bread, into the study, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is it you move from room to room? Well, it's a house like any other house. You use the hallway. You use the corridors. You can't go anywhere without the hallway. And as you're walking through the hallways, you're encountering other people. You're crossing paths. You're rubbing up against them. And Jesus doesn't question this reality. In fact, he knows it. He lives it. And he doesn't question the reality of of your hurts and your wounds. No doubt you have been sinned against, and so have I. The issue isn't the existence of sin or the existence of pain. The issue is what you do with them. How do you treat them? What are you going to do with your debts? Not just the ones that you owe, but the ones that are owed to you. Dale Carnegie, some of you remember Dale Carnegie, wrote a book years ago and he tells a story. It it feels made up to me, which means it's probably a preacher's story, but he talks about a visit to Yellowstone Park. He comes across a grizzly bear sitting in the center of a clearing, feasting away at some food that either campers had left behind or the bear had managed to wrestle away from whatever suspended pack they had. So there's a, this, this creature, vast, I mean enormous, feasting away. No other creature dares get close when a bear is eating, except one. I mean, a few minutes later, Carnegie noticed, almost like a Looney Tunes cartoon, as a skunk sauntered its way into the middle of the clearing, took up position right next to the bear and started feasting on all the snacks the campers had left behind. It seemed like the bear didn't object at all. And and Carnegie says he knew the reason why. The grizzly, he said, knew the high cost of getting even. (laughs) You ever had dogs or, or pets sprayed by a skunk? Hands up. Ours was sprayed how long ago, honey? Six months ago, we still smell skunk on our dog. We still smell skunk on the furniture where our dog lies down. I mean, there is a high cost to getting even. And it's true, uh, not just in the, in the realm of just fictional animal stories. It's true in our lives. 
you pay a high price. You pay, you pay that price relationally. I mean, there's a reason why whenever these characters are depicted, usually in Western movies, bounty hunters, hitmen, are always alone. Who wants to travel with that kind of a person? Who wants to hang out with a person who settles scores for a living? I mean, you never want to be on their bad side. Uh, more than once, I've been in the room, so have you, as a person just lets loose with a salvo of anger. And maybe it's not even directed at you, but you just, it, it's like a storm blowing through the room. And, and you're listening and thinking, I hope I never get on the wrong side of that person. Cantankerous, these sorts of people. Best leave them alone. Hang out with angry people. You might catch a stray bullet. So you pay a price relationally. You also pay a price physically. I mean, the Bible is actually quite clear about this. It says, Job 5, 2, that resentment actually kills. Who does it kill? Those who are foolish enough to live their lives just deeply embedded in that, in that mentality of resentment. You owe me. Reminds me of an old Amos and Andy cartoon. How many of you are old enough to remember Amos and Andy? Some of you, I'm not. I'm not. Come on. No, no. Amos and Andy. Uh, Amos asks Andy about a little bottle that he's wearing on a necklace. It's nitroglycerin, he answers. And Amos is stunned that Andy would wear an explosive around his neck, ask for an explanation. Andy tells him about a fellow who has a bad habit of poking people in the chest whenever they're talking and said, it drives me crazy. So I'm wearing this nitro. So the next time he pokes me, it'll blow his finger off. He's not the first to forget that when you make getting even the primary direction of your life, you get hurt. Explosion catches you as much as it catches them. Job, biblical Job, was absolutely right when he says in chapter 18 that you tear yourself to pieces in your anger. You ever notice the people who who bug us the most, the way we describe them, they're a pain in the neck. Thank you. The first the first service, they, they were thinking lower. They're a, <laughs> they are a pain in the neck. Whose neck are we referring to when we say that? Our own, right? Not theirs. We're the ones suffering in this. Resentment is like a prison. And we put somebody in this jail cell of, jail cell of hatred, and, and then we're stuck guarding the door. Karina has a, a whole bunch of cousins that work in corrections and, and law enforcement. And we talk a little bit about what life is like if that's your job. I mean, your actual paid gig is to guard others in prison. One of the things they've said is, in fact, they're in prison as much as the prisoners they're guarding. They spend their days inside a little four-foot-by-five-foot guardhouse. The prisoner has a larger cell than they have. The guards can't leave. The prisoners get to move around a little bit during the day. The prisoners can relax. The guard is constantly on alert, always has to be ready. And maybe we object and say, but at the end of the day, the prisoner goes home and sleeps in their own bed at night. And that's true. But not so for the prison of resentment. You never leave. If you are out only to settle the score, you can never rest. Why? Because chances are your enemy is not paying up. They may never pay up. You may think that they owe you an apology and it will never come. 
That racist may never repent. That chauvinist may never change. And as justified as you may feel you are in your desire for vengeance, you may never get a penny's worth of justice. And even when you do, will it ever be enough? I mean, think about this for a second. Just how much justice is enough? Picture that enemy for a minute. Don't look at them if they're here, but just... Just picture them. Picture them tied to a post. Picture a strong-armed man with a whip in hand saying, how many lashes do they deserve? One? Ten? Forty lashes? The whip cracks? The blood flows? Punishment is inflicted? Your foe slumps to the ground in pain. You walk away. Are you happy now? Is your life settled? Are you at peace? I don't know. Maybe for a while. Maybe until another memory surfaces. Another lash is needed. When does it all stop? It stops, I think, when we take seriously the words of Jesus. So let's read them again. Forgive us our debts. Will you say that with me? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And let's listen to the explanation that Jesus gives. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you don't forgive their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And even though in this verse we learn about the high cost of getting even, even though you, you pay this high price relationally and physically, I think Jesus is offering a far more significant reason to forgive. You pay a high price spiritually. And before we unpack the verses, uh, it's wise to point out not just what they mean, what they don't mean. I don't think this means that suddenly God has changed his mind and everywhere else the Bible talks about the grace of God, that suddenly it's wrong. And this is a, a, a new law coming from God that says grace only comes when you are involved in this activity. So you work for it, and if you achieve it, it's only through your ability to forgive others. At first blush, it would seem that this what, what this is is some sort of like a, a triangular peace treaty where God forgives you as long as you forgive others. A triangular treaty. If I forgive my enemy, God will forgive me. But how could it be that? I mean, it's it's just so clear that when you read the whole counsel of God, all of Scripture, that that Jesus as Savior, the whole reason we have a Savior, the whole reason we have a cross, is because there is no action, no activity, not even forgiveness offered that can achieve what's necessary in us. If salvation is a result of our efforts, then why would Paul insist, Ephesians 2, that you've been saved by grace and only grace through believing? You didn't save yourselves. This was a gift from God. In some ways, this is not unlike last week. Remember, we talked about that prayer last week, forgive us our debts. We pray that knowing that forgiveness has already been achieved through Jesus. It's kind of like a celebration of something God has done and is still doing. As we forgive others, 
It's a celebration of what God has in mind for us. And we should still be doing it. Uh, Those of you who are parents, maybe maybe this helps. Think of a moment when, when one of your children, I don't know, broke a family rule, a significant one violated some of the standards, the foundations uh, on which your family is built. Now, they break a rule. I'm not sure how it works in your house, but they break a rule in our house. We don't disown them. We don't kick them out of the house and make them change their last name. But we do expect a level of honesty and the level of, uh, uh, of apology. And until they do, there is something about the tenderness of the relationship that suffers. Now, the nature of the relationship isn't altered. They're still our kids. We're still their parents. But for a time, intimacy falls, doesn't it? Doesn't the same thing happen in a relationship with God? Confession doesn't create a relationship, but it sure nourishes it. And if you're a believer, admission of sins doesn't alter your position before God, but it enhances that sense of peace with God. When you confess, you're agreeing with God. You're agreeing with God. It says, this is, this is not any way to live a life. This is not what I had in mind. This is not what abundant life looks like. You quit arguing with God and you start agreeing with him about what the good life means and, and when we've missed the mark. Unconfessed sin means you're living in a perpetual state of disagreement with God. You may be God's child, but I don't know. You just, you don't see eye to eye with him. In fact, you don't even spend a lot of time in conversation with him. He still loves you. Doesn't love what you've done. And there's going to be tension in the house. Just as unconfessed sin hinders joy, Confessed sin releases it. Will you say that with me? Just as unconfessed sin hinders joy, confessed sin releases it. When we admit sin, it's kind of, you're kind of like a first grader standing up before the teacher with a messy piece of paper and saying, look, I colored outside the lines too many times. Could I get a clean sheet so I could start again? And of course, says the teacher, here you are. And you go back to your desk and say, happy is the first grader who's given a, glee, a clean sheet. Or as David says in the Psalm, Psalm 32, happy is the person whose sin is forgiven and whose wrongs are pardoned. We dash back to our desk and we start again. Would there ever be a case that you can imagine where a teacher would say no? No fresh paper for you. You just live with that mess that you created. huh? I'm not a teacher, so I I, I don't know what classroom management skills look like, but I can imagine a scenario where that might happen. And, And here's what it is. What if just a few minutes earlier, that teacher saw the child who'd asked for a a fresh new sheet, refused to offer the same to all the kids around them, you know, sitting on a huge pad of construction paper, said, could we have one? I mean, just one. It's 500 sheets thick. Could we have just one? And, and stubbornly you said no. Who could blame a teacher if they said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you the same kindness and the same opportunity that you gave to your friends at your work table. The way that you treat Harry and Sally around you, that's the way that we're, we're going to treat you. Now, I'll still be your teacher. And you're still my student, and we're still in the classroom together, and I'm still going to give you the chance to learn. 
See, we're getting to the nitty-gritty of the verse, of exactly what it means. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And, and here it is. It's one of the great principles in all of the Bible. And it's a courageous prayer that looks to God and says, God, you can treat me the way I treat my neighbors. Are you aware that that's what you're saying when you pray that? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Give me what I give them. Grant me the same peace that I bring to others. Let me enjoy the same tolerance that I offer. God, will you treat me the way that I treat others? In any given Christian community, any church, there's always going to be two kinds of people. There there are those who are contagious in their joy, and then there are those who are just cranky in their faith. They've accepted Christ, but it's just like they're a balloon with no helium in them. They don't. They don't float, there's no airiness, there's no lightness in them. One's grateful, the other's grumpy. Both are saved. I'm not saying that. Both are saved, both are heaven bound. But one sees the rainbow and the other one only ever sees the rain. What's the difference? Well, could it be that part of the difference is right here? That they're experiencing the same joy that they have offered to others, particularly their offenders. One says, I forgive you. And they go through life feeling forgiven. The other says, I'm ticked off. And they go through life ticked off at the world. Always feeling like the world owed them something. Or God owed them something. Jesus expands on this. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 6. If you want to turn with me, Luke 6, verses 37 and 38. Jesus says, don't judge other people. And you won't be judged. Don't accuse others of being guilty and you won't be accused of being guilty. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and you will receive. You will be given much, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will spill into your lap. It's that much. The way you give to others is the way that God will give to you. It's kind of like God sends you to the market to buy groceries for your neighbor. What are you going to get your neighbor? Get them what you would get for yourself. Whatever you give is what you receive. Pretty simple. I'm not too bright. I can figure this one out. I love a thick, juicy hamburger. So I'm shopping for my neighbor. I'm going to go and get the best ground beef that I can and, and great, great thick buns. And we're going to make something. I'm crazy about Kawartha Dairy's Moose Tracks ice cream. So I'll make my way to that particular aisle in the grocery store and I'll get the big tub, not just the little one. And when I drink coffee, I don't want it to be that nasty brewed stuff that's been sitting on a hot plate for two or three hours. I want Christian coffee, just the way God intended it. Two shots of espresso pulled delicately through high pressure in an exotic European machine, topped off with hot water, lightly misted with milk. So what is it that I buy my neighbor? Christian coffee, just the way God intended it. Let's take this a little step further. Let's imagine your neighbor has a bag of garbage that gets loose and blows trash all over your yard. Just a mess. And he says, listen, I'll I'll get to it next week. And you inform him, listen, I've got company coming over the weekend. Could could we do it together? Clean up the yard and so it looks all right. And tells you not to be so picky. He'll get to it when he gets to it. And he goes so far as to say, hey, the garbage fertilizes your garden. Yeah. Uh, 
you're just about to walk across the lawn and have a talk. When God reminds you, time to go to the market, shop for your neighbor's groceries. You grumble and you mumble your way through the store. It occurs to you, I could, I could get even with the old bum. And so you, you walk into the coffee aisle and you buy the crudest, cheapest variety you can lay your hands on, like dirt in a package. And you go past the fresh meat aisle into the canned fish aisle and you grab some anchovies and you go through all the lavish fresh fruits and vegetables and you decide on okra. And then you make a final stop in the day-old bread section, bread section. You pick up a crusty loaf that's got green spots all over the edges. And chuckling, you drive back to the house and you drop the sack of groceries on your neighbor's front porch. That good-for-nothing neighbor. Have a good dinner. And you walk away. And all your brilliant scheming, you're so proud of yourself. that You've worked up a bit of an appetite yourself. And so you go into your own kitchen. You open the pantry and the fridge. And guess what's in your fridge? Canned sardines, okra, and stale bread. What a dinner. You wonder why others look so happy and some look so cranky. Maybe this is part of it. It could be God is giving you exactly what you're giving other people. And maybe some of you have been feasting on sardines and old bread for a long time. And it's not going to change until something changes in you. What would a different menu look like? What would it look like to find peace by offering peace? To enjoy God's generosity by being a generous person that others enjoy being around. What would, what would the assurance of forgiveness look like, not only as you receive it from God, but as you spread it to other people? What will you be eating this afternoon? Moose tracks? Moldy bread? It's up to you. We're going to close by, by saying the words Jesus has been teaching us, the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to invite you, if you learned those words, you probably learned it in, in your first language, the language of your heart, whatever that is. Whatever that language is, I invite you to join me as we pray. I'll lead in English, but I, I want to hear it in all the languages that are here in the room. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.